Hi, I'm Amal Arulanandam, and this is Talkin' Blues. I'm not even going to attempt that name. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it often ends in disaster for people who've tried. And before any gig where someone has to introduce me, Invariably, the person who's speaking will come up to me in a panic and be like, I've been practicing this all afternoon, but I don't know how to say it. And, and they'll apologize like 15 times in advance before they actually get to saying it. Um, and then we, we get it down and they'll say it right like five times in a row for me. And they'll get up onto the podium or wherever they're talking from. And it'll just be a disaster. <laughs> they, they look at me like so apologetically after they like, Amal, and, and keep going. Yeah, I'm going to call you Amal. All right, um, that's good. <laughs> so, okay, tell me about your background. Where, what, what is your background? Born in Newfoundland, but my parents are Sri Lankan Tamil. Okay. Um, and so they, somehow they wound up in Newfoundland. I'm not Do, really sure how. Oh, we don't know? So I don't know. Um, there are a lot of things that I neglected to find out about my parents for some reason. Um, I know that they met in London, England, and they got married there. Uh, and then I th- somehow... My dad ended up getting a, he's an account, he's, or he's retired, but he was an accountant. And he ended up getting a job at a bank in Newfoundland. Uh, in, and we moved to this tiny town called Victoria, Newfoundland that no one's heard of. Which is whereabouts in Newfoundland? Uh, it's like center east. It's about an hour, hour and a half west of St. John's. Okay. Uh, and so the joke amongst Newfoundlanders is like, they'll say Victoria, Victoria, BC, behind Carbonier. Because the closest, like, air quotes, major city is Carbonier, which is, again, a tiny, tiny town. But, um, yeah, so we were born in Carbonier General Hospital, lived in Victoria. Uh, I think my parents moved there in the late 70s. What po- what's the population like? How, how big is the I want to say, like, a couple of thousand, if that. Okay. Um, and, but we moved away when I was about two and a half, because my dad had ended up getting a different job at a bank in Toronto, and so he was flying back and forth, and it just got to be too expensive. And so we ended up moving uh, to Mississauga. So I, for all intents and purposes, I grew up in Ontario, in Mississauga, suburb of Toronto. Since the age of two and a half. Two and a half, yeah. So you probably don't remember Newfoundland much. I have very small, specific memories of certain things that... And it's weird. I guess they, they somehow imprinted themselves in my mind at the time and I know that they're real because my parents have confirmed it we don't have any pictures of them right. but uh, there was a, a like everyone knew each other in this town because it was so small and uh, my godparents lived down the street from us and they would regularly babysit my sister and I um, and I remember specifically the wheelbarrow rides that uh, Uncle Reg was his name <laughs> would, would take me for um, and I remember the layout of his wife, Aunt Emmy's kitchen and house that I used to like ro- roam around in. And I was able to describe it very accurately, but there's no pic- there We don't have any pictures or anything of it. So there's like a couple of things that I remember vividly. But other than that, no, I have no real connection to. That's pretty amazing though yeah. from two and a half, because I don't think I remember anything from two and a half. I, it's weird. I have I remember a, a lot of things from a long time ago, but if you asked me what happened about an hour and a half ago, I wouldn't be able to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> it's called long memory and short term memory. Yeah. <laughs> so last time I saw you, we were sitting in Kerner Hall for the dress rehearsal of the Royal Conservatory Orchestra. Yeah. What were you doing there? 
so the the soloist for the Elgar Concerto was a friend of mine that I went to McGill with. Oh, okay. Um, and she, I guess she started there in my, in the second year of my master's. She was doing her undergrad. Um, and then we were also involved in some tours. We both played with Uccello, which is the cello ensemble of our, our teacher there, Matt Heimovitz. Right. Um, and we did like a, some small tours of the U.S., uh, just a couple of dates in California. And, um, and we like kind of kept in touch. And she started at the Glenn Gould School re- there recently. And um, I just wanted to go see and kind of support because I knew I wasn't going to be able to go to the concert and I wanted to hear how she was doing. And, so was yeah. it, is it more of a support thing or were you there to learn? I wouldn't say I was there to learn. Okay. Um, I was, like, I wanted to hear her play because I was curious. She was always a great cellist. Um, and it was really interesting. It's interesting to me, I guess in some ways this is learning, to hear how people that I knew at a younger age have developed over time. Right. Um, which was great to see because she, like, really commanded that stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and played with a lot of intensity and power and, and just, it was really good and it was cool to see. it's always cool to see like someone that you like doing well and doing even better for themselves later on yeah and also I think it was her first concert with a large orchestra yep so and and so we interviewed her afterwards and she was talking about how comfortable and confident she felt when she walked out because she was concerned about being nervous nervous and, yep. everything. and I guess she might have been but as soon as she walked on stage apparently Everything fell into place and she felt great about it. It's interesting how that happens. So my first experience doing a similar thing was with the McGill Symphony. Right. Um, and in, so in 2015, I played the Barber Cello Concerto with the McGill Symphony. And that was my... And he, she was actually in the cello section for that concert. Okay. Um, and that was my first experience ever playing as a soloist with a large orchestra. And... I was very nervous at first before the rehearsals, but there's something about having an orchestra comprised of your peers and friends behind you. And like the conductor I had known from my two years at McGill and we had a good relationship and it just, there's a lot, you feel a lot of support from behind you. Um, And then your friends are in the audience and there's just a lot of factors that contribute to you doing well and feeling like, everything's set up for you to do well. And so the only thing really holding back, holding you back from doing that would be your own hangups. But, but when you have that support from the people behind you, you can kind of feel that and they want you to do well because they're your friends. Right. And it helps calm you down. Yeah. But tell me, okay, so you're in a featured artist in front of a 70 piece orchestra. Mm -hmm. How long, tell me about the process of doing this. When you went up on stage, how long had you actually worked on the piece on your own and then with the orchestra. So I had started learning the barber, I think, I think two years before that performance, probably. Knowing um, knowing that you were going to do that performance? No, or, okay. no. So I, just like Hannah, I was given the opportunity to play the piece because I did well in a concerto competition Okay. Um, at McGill. And so then they gave me the opportunity to come back the following season to play that piece. Uh, and so, but, but before that I had worked on it for over a year prior to the competition. Okay. And you're working on it on your own? With my teacher, but, but not, and with a pianist, most likely. Uh, that, I did have a pianist for that. Um, 
and usually that's the closest you'll get to the orchestra before you actually get rehearsals. But at this point, you're learning all the notes. You're memorizing it all. Yeah, but well, by the time you get to the performance, you better have everything memorized. Because then, <laughs> I mean, some people will play with music, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that, especially with um, a lot of later 20th and 21st century pieces. You would use score for that to play from, but um, Barber was from a time period where like it wasn't hard to memorize, and it felt more comfortable to have memorized. Like, and the thing was with me, um, I'm lucky in that I tend to memorize things as I'm learning them. It just kind of happens. Okay. Uh, so that wasn't really a problem. Um, but when you memorize, like what what I found really amazing, and mainly because. I'm totally non-musical, but during the dress rehearsals, they would stop and then start at a different place. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, okay, start here. And without Hannah having the she, the, the music in front of her, mm-hmm. it was like she just knew where that was. Yeah, like when I look at concerto playing as kind of, it's a different form of chamber music. And so when you're playing a string quartet or a piano trio, or in my case, a cello duo, uh you should be fully aware of what the other person or people are doing and what that material is and kind of where it happens in time. And I don't think playing a concerto is playing a concerto is very different in that respect. Mm -hmm. Um, Like when I did the barber, by the time we got to the rehearsal, like I knew just about everything that was happening in the orchestra part. I knew, um, like I kind of went a bit overboard. I knew rehearsal markers and things like that at that point, just because I wanted to be, so comfortable by the time you get to playing with the orchestra that you don't have to worry about what's going on there as much. You can just kind of focus on playing music right. and or making music, creating something. But how much time are you spending with the orchestra? So with the orchestra, that depends. With a, with a university orchestra, typically you will get way more time with the orchestra than you'll get with a professional one. So I had probably... Three or four rehearsals with them before the performance, and two performances. Uh, also, because that piece is very—it's not very commonly played, and the conductor didn't know it. He had never heard it until I played it the previous year um, for the competition, right. and uh, he needed to feel comfortable with it too. So it was kind of for both of us, and he ended up conducting it for memory because he does everything for memory. Uh, and it was perfect. So but, four four rehearsals with yeah. the orchestra. Um, over what period of time? Uh, just in one week. Oh really? Yep. Wow. Uh, and typically, so that was it was three rehearsals and then a, the dress rehearsal. Okay, so these are all silly questions, but mm-hmm. it's a world I know nothing about. Yeah, absolutely. So when you, I presume before you did this, you had actually been in an orchestra played in the cello section yeah many times yeah okay so i've been in that orchestra playing in that cello section right so how different is it how different is do things sound while you're sitting in the cello area with the rest of the cello players Mm -hmm. versus you being a featured solo artist uh very different especially in that hall it it really depends on the hall you're sitting like it's somewhere like kerner hall um it's kind of built in a way that no matter where you're sitting for anything, you can hear everything very clearly. Right. Um, but one facet of sitting in a section is you do hear a lot of that section. And when you're sitting in front of an orchestra, you get kind of a bit more of the full picture. Right. 
um, which is important because you need to be able to hear what other instruments are doing so you can play off of that. Like you can't just be focused on one one side or one instrument or one one section for the whole time. So how aware are you if somebody, and I don't know if this even happens, but if somebody screws up in the, the wind section or... Uh, wind section, it'll, it's, it'll be really apparent because typically winds and brass will be one on a part. Right. And usually those are very important parts. So if they, that's why there's so much pressure on um, winds and brass in orchestra because they, they're basically soloists within the context of an orchestra. And so it's in a section, like a string section, you can make a mistake and no one will hear it except for maybe the people next to you. Right. Um, or if he has the hearing of like a hound, the conductor. But wind section, if you make a mistake... Everyone will notice. Um, okay, so did anything happen when you played? No, no. And, and you're very aware of everything that's going on around you. Yeah. Like, I just don't know how how involved you get in the piece and into what you're executing versus what's going on around you with this mega piece orchestra. You have to keep a bit of a balance. Like you need to be involved in the music that you're making and and exist in the moment. But there are also spots in the music where I'd be like okay in this section you need to think about this so this doesn't happen not in a way of like panic or fretting but just a little like a little reminder to yourself so you're conscious of what's going on but you're still trying to exist as spontaneously as possible and what did that experience teach you what did you walk away after that experience it was really exhilarating there's nothing that really kind of feels like that it's just I don't know, there's something about this huge kind of wall of sound coming behind you, but also the ability of 70 people to play really quietly and support your own sound and just, I don't know, it's hard to describe. It, it, it was a pretty amazing feeling, especially like I had, the McGill Symphony always does two nights for all their concerts. And the first night felt good, but the second night felt like really, really, really good. I felt a lot more confident. Not that I didn't feel confident and comfortable the first night, but a lot of things fell into place right. in the second night. And it just was... I find that my best performances, I will remember nothing about them immediately after I'm finished playing. And it's hard for me to to pick moments out of the performance because like, that's when you're in the zone. Right. right? And you're so just involved in creating something and, and expressing yourself basically but when you say you don't remember anything you remember the fact that i remember the fact that i played something but i don't remember anything that happened other than i remember walking on stage and i remember playing the last note and bowing and i remember that feeling when i finished the piece but i don't remember anything in between and the only way that i can recall this is there's a video of it right and then when you watch the video what's it like it was, inter- it was It's really interesting watching myself play and hearing it, um, because I don't remember any of it. Because you're just so in this different zone. It's like almost like an out of body thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the whole time. I mean, I've heard musicians time. talking about, you know, doing a show and then hitting that zone. Yeah. At a particular point, I, I rarely hear everybody's that whole evening being that. The whole performance, all of my performances that I've felt the best about have been like that. And it doesn't happen super often. Uh, it's happened with a lot of VC2 stuff. Um, and that concerto performance was one of those. 
rare huh. moments where everything just just clicked and I don't remember any of it. <laughs> is, is that a good thing? That's a good thing, I think. It's not good to dwell too much on, on those kinds of things because as musicians, especially as classical musicians, there's this almost destructive focus on perfection, like absolute perfection. Yeah. And we tend to get way too caught up in our own heads about about trying to be perfect in every aspect and in your practice i think that's really important you need to you can't compromise um in terms of quality in in practicing but agonizing over the little things that may or may not have gone wrong in a performance or letting it affect you negatively that's just it's you're going to be miserable for your entire professional life. And a lot of people end up, that ends up happening, right? Uh, it's easy to become jaded and to become, uh, there's a lot of depression you see amongst, not just musicians, but artists in general, because of this, I think, um, this desire to be perfect and to never, to never feel like incentive to keep working, I think. Okay, so are you telling me that you don't get hung up about... I do. Of course I do. <laughs> oh, okay. There's no way to avoid it, but you try to minimize that as much as right. possible. Of course, they'll, they'll have moments where, like, I don't think it ever goes away. You, you get these moments of imposter syndrome, and um, you feel like you don't belong in, in the field that you're in, yeah. or, like, why am I doing this when there are these people that are better, like... Although I, I think that's probably in everything. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say for sure. Um, but it's it's more of a matter of how you deal with it and rebound from it and get out of it yeah. and are able to keep going from that. But when I watch some amazing classical musicians, I'm awed by most of them because I just think they play so beautifully and they execute so beautifully. But I can understand that they not might not feel the same and it wasn't as good as the, what they thought they could do. But I think that's what makes them better. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you have to be your own worst critic. But I think it, it shouldn't be in a way that becomes detrimental yeah. to your existence. <laughs> no, I totally agree. What right. did surprise me was um, having been involved in a few recording sessions with some pretty world-class musicians mm -hmm. and how they're very critical and how they have to take you know, one note out and redo that or whatever. Oh, yeah. And, then, <laughs> and that surprised me because it's not just one note. It could be many notes in, in you know, a 10-minute piece, but we're talking like a single note that, that wasn't executed perfectly, so they would just re-edit that. So it's funny you bring that up because we just recorded and released an album. The, right. the, we By we, I mean the duo. Um, VC2? VC2, yeah. And uh, there was a lot of that in the sessions. Um, like we had both done lots of like session work for other artists. And so it's up to them whether they want to redo right. parts or yada, yada, yada. But this was our CD. Um, music written by people we have an incredible amount of respect for. Uh, and we wanted to not only do them proud, but do something that we were proud of too. Right. And that was one of those cases where we definitely were like, we were agonizing over details and thing like one note or like this second half of this note was bad. So we need to redo this section or like redo that note or punch in this chord or um, just to make sure you 
the recorded product is is great. And like the thing is, a lot of the pieces we found were super effective live. But when you get in the studio under a microscope, there are some things that just don't quite work. So we had to change and edit. And so there was nothing that we um, edited in a way where it's fault. Like we played everything. There was no edits done to tuning or right. um, to anything like that timing whatever uh we played everything but there was more chopping up than than we would have liked at the time but we've learned since that most classical records now are done that way Mm -hmm. because of the sheer demands of perfection which is really different from if you listen to a lot of recordings from like two generations ago i'm going to name one in particular that i really really like there's a really famous recording by um cellist piedagorsky gregor piedagorsky of the Schumann Concerto, I believe. And it was all one take um, from beginning to end, a live take. And you can hear at the end of the recording one of the musicians in the orchestra like audibly gasp and say bravo and like drop his bow or something like that because he was so awed by this performance. That doesn't really happen anymore. Like You never really get one right. live take like that, unless it's a live album, right. which is a different thing. So when when you when you're playing and recording this album, do you know the moment you hit the note that you're not happy with, or is it always on playback that you wonder? Usually we can tell, um, like you know. But we didn't want to take that risk this time, so we had a producer, right? Um, a producer who has very very good discerning ears and someone who we knew we know very well and we're comfortable with, and so we basically told him like, don't mince words. Just tell us if we suck here and we'll fix it. Be like, no, you guys, that was total crap. Like, we need to do that again. And it was great. It worked. It worked really well. Um, he, uh, he being Drew Jureka. Drew Jureka, yeah. Um, he was amazing. He's also just a wizard with, mm-hmm. with microphone placement and all this kind of stuff, too. Like, he, he engineered the majority of the record. We had another guy with, uh, with us for the first two sessions, Alex Gamble. Um, who's also amazing, um, but he's so high in demand now. It seems that uh, it's hard to get a hold of him. Um, <laughs> but Drew was amazing for all that. Like the idea was that we had we were we were going to have Alex engineer so Drew could focus on producing. Um, but Alex ended up being so busy that he could only sit in for the first two sessions. So Drew engineered and produced. He produced the whole album. I would say he engineered eighty percent of the record, if not a little bit more. Um, but it was, they were both amazing to work with and, and yeah, we would, we wouldn't have had anybody else, I think for that record. I don't know Andrew, but I know Drew mm-hmm. and his playing, which is insanely good. Yeah. He's a monster. <clears throat> yeah. Let's go back, mm-hmm. go back to the beginning. Cause uh, you didn't start off like many classical musicians at the ripe age of three or anything. Like I did. You, <laughs> you did. I did. I, so I started, oh, okay. um, I guess I, sh- I could tell you about how I started. So my I have an older sister who's a violinist. Right. Uh, and they put her on the violin when she was about three. Uh, she's seven years older than me. And so when I rolled around, they waited a little later. Uh, and they wanted to start me on the violin as well. But my sister's teacher was like, don't put them on the same instrument. They'll, they'll fight and bicker. Uh, so they gave me the cello. It didn't really stop the fighting or bickering. So what age were you? Uh, four. Okay. When I started. But for me, as a, a young person playing the cello, 
I didn't view it as anything more than like a serious hobby. Like it was fun for me. I liked playing. I liked making music, but I, I didn't think about it a lot. Um, I wasn't. But I don't know at age four if you would though. There are a lot of people, kids now, who like seem to approach it from a much more analytical perspective than I would have. I was just like, I did, I went through the Suzuki method. So my teacher would would demonstrate something for me and tell me to play it, and I would just do that. And so did that come easy to you? It did. Yeah. Um, I've always had kind of an inclination towards being able to pick up and play something or learn it pretty quickly in terms of a, an instrument. Um, I also played the trumpet later in life, but we can, we'll get to that eventually. Uh, so I, I played from age of four, uh, but I like violently refused to do anything extra with it. They tried to get me into, um, youth orchestras and things like that and I just wouldn't have any of it group classes I didn't want to do any of that and finally when I was um, about 13 they convinced my teacher and my mother convinced me to do Mississauga Youth Orchestra and I wish like though I don't want to say I regret anything but I wish that I had gone into youth orchestra earlier because those were like amazing years and really important to developing as a musician and learning how to actually read music properly because with Suzuki you do a lot by ear so I always found that I was able to learn melodies by ear and uh, it got me pretty decent at improvising and things like that but uh, when you're in an orchestra you kind of get thrown to the wolves so to say and you need to be able to sight read and I didn't know how to do that and so it was really important for me um, just and being around a lot of people in, that are all interested in kind of doing the same thing, playing music, because like no one that I grew up with at school was a musician, really. Why do you think you didn't want to do that initially? Why did you fight that uh, idea of? Working? I don't really know. I was a kind of. A, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not really sure. I was I was a little bit of a spoiled brat, um, and I didn't want to do anything extra. I just kind of wanted to play video games. Okay, but and uh, how much the the cello mean to you at that point? Uh, I liked playing a lot, but uh, when I got older, I started hating practicing. So um, I'd say around that age, 13, 14, I stopped wanting to practice and I would start finding excuses to not go to lessons. Uh, and then when I hit high school in 10th grade, I basically just quit playing. Right. Um, and I had made the decision. So somewhere around there, I was watching um, either TLC or something like that. And they used to have um, live surgeries. And so I saw this live surgery and I was like, that's really cool. I want to do that. Um, and so I made this decision to pursue science and medicine. And so I was, I was playing in the high school band. I, I picked up the trumpet and I'd gotten pretty good at that. Um, and so I was still doing that, but I wasn't really playing the cello anymore. Um, and I was going... And the trumpet came easy to you? The trumpet came easy to me, yeah. How about the love of music throughout this time? Like, at what point, when you first took up the cello, other than being able to execute and, and replicate or whatever, was there a love of music that you had that... There was. Like, I always, I was always listening to something or, or some, there was always music playing. But I would say the first music that I really, really, like, fell in love with on my own was... Uh, Late elementary school, early high school was heavy metal. Right. Um, and that came from a friend's older brother gave me this mix CD with a bunch of European metal bands. I could. Um, 
Blind Guardian was a big one for me. Um, they're a German power metal band. Mm-hmm. Uh, this Polish death metal band called Vader. Um, a Norwegian black metal band called Mayhem. Those were kind of the three big early things. And it really kind of threw me into this. And like I was already into stuff like Korn at the time and, right. um, and Metallica. But this stuff was something complete. And I was scared to listen to it. It was, it was like, because the lyrical themes were, were a lot more aggressive and yeah. dark and, like, for lack of a better term, evil than something like Korn, which is about teen angst. Um, and then, like, reading about the history of some of these bands, that also terrified me. And so I would kind of, like, listen and be scared. Um, also, at the time, like, I was raised Catholic. Right. But... I would never have, I would never call myself a serious Catholic and like towards the end of my elementary school years I kind of I was baptized and communionized and confirmed and blah 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 but uh, I wasn't really feeling it but I still had a little bit of that Catholic guilt in me so I would listen to this stuff and feel right. like a little guilty and eventually it just kind of took over and it was it was a really um, it kind of kept me sane through a lot of high school I think it was a good way to channel like bad feelings into this music. Um, and you're still playing the cello or you're playing pl- the trumpet? Uh, I, was, I was playing the trumpet in band. I wasn't really playing the cello anymore. Um, I had started you... to play a little bit of guitar because okay. of this stuff. So we talked about the guitar. Yeah. And then, so was, is that what you were playing on the guitar? Uh, yeah, I would sit in my basement and uh, I would learn songs by like this band Death. And I, I taught myself how to scream. <laughs> and my parents would they were I like think about what they must have been thinking now they were like upstairs hearing the kid in the basement with this guitar amp cranked to 10 um with like all the distortion you could find uh playing really fast aggressive music and like screaming at the top of his lungs <laughs> well, you did, but you did this as a solo artist did you ever get into a, like a thrash metal band or I had a really crappy cover band with a few friends that played some nightwish covers Mm-hmm. Uh, that never we, we were going to play at the school I guess they called it Rock what did they call it Rockstock I think they called it Rockstock um, but basically like a Battle of the Bands thing we never ended up doing it though um, yeah I, I didn't I didn't do that and then I I, I was going through the IB International Baccalaureate program uh, at the same time focusing on science and math and I ended up going to McMaster for, for life sciences out of high school and that's um, you, science was where you want to head. Science is where I want, yeah. But I didn't realize what it was going to be like in university, and it was the driest, most boring garbage that I had ever <laughs> encountered. And I was having like, it was just miserable. Okay, going back. Yeah. <laughs> tell me the difference between not the difference, but tell me about playing um, your cello or your trumpet versus playing your guitar. Like, how did you approach music differently? Was yeah, it a very well, different thing? With guitar, I would learn everything by ear. Um, and I, I learned to play a lot of songs by taking like the MP3 file, putting them into like Audacity, slowing them down, and then tabbing it all out. Right. Um, and so I wrote out a lot of tablature and did a lot of transcribing and then trying to play by like getting it really, starting really slowly and working it up. And so a lot of it was just listening to recordings and playing, whereas with cello, like there was... Um, like I had sheet music. I would still learn things by ear, but it was more like written pieces. Uh, metal bands tend... It's a bit. It's a lot different now. There are a lot of trained musicians who are playing mm-hmm. heavy music, but 
in that period, it was much you were much less likely to encounter someone with a knowledge of writing music or music theory, and so it was all just. But like, you had that. I had that, but I didn't. I didn't think about that when I was playing guitar, and I still don't even like now. It's better, but I I never thought about what notes I was playing on the neck, and what notes were in a chord that I was playing or anything like that. I would just kind of learn this thing, and I knew where sounds were, right, on the instrument. Okay, so because I interviewed somebody recently who was telling me about two instruments they played. Mm-hmm. Um, but one they could improvise, mm-hmm. and one the other one they couldn't, mm-hmm. and it was it seemed kind of weird to me that they're, they're they're musical and they could play two instruments, but they treated one very much like an improvisational piece, mm-hmm. and then the other one was they had to be able to read. So at the time, I would say I, I would I at the time I was able to improvise more fluently on guitar because I was doing everything by ear. Right. Now. I can definitely I am much more fluent in improvising on the cello. So, how much of the cello training helped you in your guitar playing? Um, the the ear training for sure. Uh, I think that was a big thing, and just left hand facility. Um, like I always had a very fast left hand, and that definitely translated to fretting work on the guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, so that helped a lot, I think. Uh, and where does the trumpet come into this? Trumpet. Uh, my school didn't have a strings program. And so I signed up for music class and like everyone has to get an instrument. And I listed my top three as um, tenor sax, trumpet, and then euphonium. I got given the euphonium. Uh, I got really good at the euphonium really fast. So within the first, I'd say, month of being at school on euphonium, they put me in uh, the junior band, senior band, uh, and wind ensemble. And then they needed a trumpet player. So they're like, here's a trumpet, try. And so then after about two weeks of playing the trumpet, I was first trumpet in the jazz band. So you could just make the sound properly in two weeks. Yeah. That's amazing. It just, I don't know, it just happened. I figured some things out and, <laughs> and I was still kind of enthusiastic about playing. And like, I, I, I liked playing, but it was never, like I said, it wasn't anything serious. It was just like, right. this is a hobby that I'm good at. That's... I like doing and all my friends I think had thought that I was going to go into music because of things like this but you never considered this no I it had never really crossed my mind okay so you go into sciences mm-hmm. go to university and find that science is not as exciting as you thought it would be yeah and so you hit a brick wall or a crossroad yep so now what are you thinking so in my my second year um, so my first year of, of university I kind of coasted through and like I passed all my courses, but my marks weren't that great. And by the time I hit my second year, I kind of lost all my enthusiasm for, for being at university for that subject. And I wasn't really going to my classes or doing anything. And did you know what um, you wanted to do? No, I had no idea. So what I, what I really loved a lot in high school um, was English and philosophy. And incidentally, those were the two courses that I did the best in there. Um, like I still did well in sciences and maths, but English and philosophy were anything to do with language. I really enjoyed. Um, and so I was thinking I would stay at McMaster and do a double degree in English and philosophy. So I started taking a couple of courses towards that. But then, um, I had been going to metal shows by myself in Hamilton because there weren't a lot of metal heads that I knew, uh, on campus, um, and there was a pretty good scene there at the time. And I went to see these two bands 
from Quebec uh, that don't exist anymore. Uh, one was called Unexpect, and the other one at the time was called Profugus Mortis, uh, who later changed their name to Blackguard. Uh, but they both had violinists. And I remember watching them, and I'd seen Unexpect before um, in Toronto, like a few years back before that. But I remember seeing them and thinking, like, I want to do that. I want to be on stage and, like, rock out. I already play the cello. I could do that again. So I kind of started playing again. I joined the, the chamber orchestra there for the last couple of months of school. Um, not, not a death metal band. No, not a death metal band. Uh, and but, then I ended I'm sorry, up... But when you said, I want to do that on stage, mm-hmm. were you not thinking in terms of more of a... I was. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I wanted, but but I, I I just wanted to get playing again. I think. Um, and how easy was it to get back into playing again? Uh, it wasn't super difficult, but it wasn't easy. I would say, like, so what ended up happening is I still kind of had the idea of doing uh, English and philosophy, but I was starting to play again, uh, and I dropped out of McMaster. I was working full time in this customer service call center um and hating every minute of it and then somewhere you were still thinking of doing the english and philosophy yeah but you decided to drop out uh well i I was taking a summer course okay and then were you but i dropped out of the science program right okay so but english and philosophy were you thinking in terms of becoming a teacher or was there was a career plan no no plan just let's do this um and then i saw that show and i was like okay i'm gonna I'm going to focus my energies on the music. I'm going to finish this stupid summer course and then I'm going to, I'm going to go into music. So I started going to music as in, I want to become a musician. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I started playing again. Uh, and then I pretty much worked up an audition to UFT by myself. I had a couple of lessons, um, with, uh, with Rachel Mercer, who's just been incredible to, for, for me and for, VC2 and just in general like she's the most amazing person it's great um, and with some other people uh, and the, the the lesson that stands out to me there that really made me push towards doing this was I had a lesson with uh, Winona Zelenka who's in the TSO mm-hmm. who's a wonderful person and and we've um, but I remember she, she's not one to mince words with anything, right? So I, I walked into her house. It was like, it was a really cold day and uh, I was really nervous. I hadn't really played in front of anyone like that before. And I played horribly. And she gave me this long lecture about how it's really hard to be a musician and I should seriously consider doing something else. <laughs> um, wow. And But she still gave me like a two and a half hour lesson for the price of a regular lesson which would be about an hour so Um, what does that what does that tell you i mean she saw potential in you i think so like a little bit but there is this long speech about like you should really think about doing something else like i don't think this is for you how did you feel when she told you that angry i was definitely angry Angry at her and her at you both at at myself and at i was angry at myself for playing so badly um and i was angry at her for saying that but i was also motivated to try and prove her wrong so did you um, understand what she was saying did it make sense to you it did make sense yeah okay um it made sense but i was still i was very stubborn especially at that time i it was hard for me to take criticism well um which changed over time but okay so could it have just been a bad day 
It was both because I didn't know anything about music or cello really, like about how to make music. No one had ever taught me that aspect of things. They had just showed like play this thing this way, and I would do it. But um, and so when I finally auditioned for U of T and I got in, it was like going in and playing like a decades of catch up with everyone. And so as I didn't know anything about composers, I didn't know anything about music theory really. I had studied like a little bit of jazz theory on my own. Um, I didn't know anything about music history. Uh, I didn't know anything really about the cello repertoire. Uh, and so I just kind of died, dove, dived. I dove headfirst into all of that and absorbed as much as I could. And I think where my musical interests ended up going, the heavy metal played a large part of what I ended up enjoying most about like 21st or about about classical again air quotes classical right. music because okay. i always focused on like the 20th century and new music and all that kind of stuff so when you decide to go to u of t mm -hmm. what are you thinking i'm going to be part of a symphony i'm going to be a soloist wasn't thinking that far ahead i was just thinking i just want to go to u of t and see what happens um i think in general i tend not to think super long-term, right. even now. Um, maybe that's bad, but I... It's not that uncommon. I exist in the moment that's happening now and maybe like a month or two down the road, if that. Um, and maybe there'll be like an abstract long-term goal. But I, I would never say that I went into it with the idea of like, okay, I'm going to play in an orchestra or I'm going to be a soloist or I'm going to be in a string quartet or blah, blah, blah. I just wanted to play music. And I wanted to see how good I could I could get at it, right. and and see where that would take me. Okay, so we go back again to that mm -hmm. that lesson with Winona. Yeah, and she's saying music is hard. Yeah, you might not have what it takes. Mm -hmm. So you walk away from that, mm -hmm. and you determine. Yeah, and so what happens next? So I keep practicing, 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 um, and I work up a bunch of repertoire that I probably shouldn't have chosen because it was too hard for me at that time. Uh, and I go in and play my audition, and I felt pretty awful about the audition, actually. Um, but I did really, really well on the ear training portion of the audition. Explain what that is. Uh, so they would play intervals and then have you identify the interval uh, as major, minor, what kind of interval it is, uh, have you identify a chord. Right. Like, is this a dominant seventh chord? Like, what is this? Um, I did really well on that. Um, and then a few months later, I got... A rejection letter from U of T in the mail. The only school that I applied to. I didn't have any plans on going anywhere else. Because uh, I wanted to move. I was already living in Toronto and I wanted to stay there. Right. Um, and then about two days after the rejection letter. Well, I, So first when I got the rejection letter, I was miserable. Because it was like, I mean, this means I got to stay in this shitty call center <laughs> for the rest of my life now. And... And just, it was awful. Um, I'm surprised you lasted that long in the call center. It was surprisingly good money. Oh, okay. I wasn't telemarketing. I was doing customer service. Um, but I was making a good amount of money. Like, that put me up in a different tax bracket. So, <laughs> um, then two days later, I got a call from the university, or from the faculty of music, saying, did you happen to get a rejection letter from, from us? And I was like, well, Yeah. And they were like, oh, just disregard that. We're offering you uh, a spot in the program. And I was like, oh, that, that's awesome. What happened? And they were like, don't worry about it. <laughs> and, 
Um, I don't know what happened. I I never really asked That's my insane. teacher there about it. I know. It was like a big emotional roller coaster. Like, pardon the, the cliche, but like... Yeah, good thing you didn't do anything drastic. No. <laughs> I, I wasn't planning on doing anything drastic, but, but it was definitely a huge low point to get that that letter um okay so what did that teach you i don't <laughs> i'm not sure that was just it was just a bizarre moment in time and uh but the feeling of finding out that i was accepted was just it was almost cathartic mm-hmm. um it was this huge wave of relief just washed over me i'm like oh yeah i'm gonna be able to start start fresh um and uh, so then I, I met with my uh, future teacher and started talking about it. And she like gave me a bunch of repertoire to look up. Um, and I started researching a lot. And then about four months before I was supposed to start at school, I ended up breaking my left pinky, which was another huge setback. Because I yeah. was thinking, like, what if I can't use this pinky again? I'm screwed. Again forever? Yeah, like because it literally snapped. It was pointing to the side, Ugh. snapped at like the halfway point in the 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 um, second, not, the first joint from the bottom of the hand. How did you do this? Uh, <laughs> Without too being too graphic. So, uh, something that I've always sort of really been into on and off has been weight training. Uh, but at that time, I was new to it and I didn't know anything about proper form or technique or anything. So I didn't know how to bail out of a squat, a weighted squat, mm-hmm. with a barbell. And so I was down in the bottom of a squat and I didn't know, I couldn't finish the rep. So I didn't know how to let the bar fall off. So I tried to stand up again and I ended up falling backwards and the bar basically wrenched my pinky to the side. Um, And so I like was sitting on the ground kind of dazed and I was like looking at my hands and I look at my left hand and my left pinky is just pointing straight to the side. And so I'm thinking, oh, my finger's just dislocated. I'll pop it back into place. And so I pushed on it. And then I have this really hazy memory of like screaming in pain and then somehow getting to the hospital. Um, And as soon as they found out I was a musician, they admitted me immediately into the OR or not OR into the emergency room. Um, I didn't have to wait in the waiting room. Uh, And they had uh, this amazing surgeon come and set the bone. So explain that to me. If you're a specialized, um, if you're in a, a specialized field where the use of certain things is required for your profession and you have damaged that, they will bypass you on the wait list to get you in immediately. Did you know this? I did not. Okay. Um, So they they brought me in immediately, set the bone as best he could because it was such a jagged break along the tendon. Um, And then uh, I did four months of rehab on the pinky. And it actually gave me a wider stretch. I see that. Yeah. So because it's it's sticking farther out to the side, I have uh, a kind of a wider reach with the pinky, which is kind of cool. Um, but uh, yeah, that was another kind of moment of like, oh crap, what what if I can't do this? Yeah, yeah. But it it made me work really hard on the rehab. Uh, and then when I got to university, it was just full steam ahead. From so there. how long did it take until you felt like you could your pinky was functioning the way you wanted to? Um, it was about four months before I could put enough pressure on it to play without it hurting. Was um, that basically about the same time as you were going back to school? Yeah. So by the time September rolled around, I could use it, but it took a while to loosen it up more. Um, 
and then it was just a lot of discovering things about music and playing and like my te- I studied with Shauna Rolston there and she was like really key in talking about musicianship and artistry and color of sound and, and all these things that I had never heard about before and just opening up this sort of world of making music as opposed to just playing a piece um, and so that kind of helped me explore my own technique and find ways to make certain things, which was then further refined later when I went to McGill for my master's. Okay. Are you still thinking, I just want to play music, I don't care in what form? Or now are you thinking, I'm going to join an orchestra? Or I had never do- really thought about orchestra life. Um, what I was really passionate about was new music. So stuff in the 20th and 21st century, stuff being written now. Uh, and that was a big reason why I wanted to go to McGill, because the teacher there um, that I went to study with, Matt Heimovitz, is has been such a pioneer and in the new music world for cello, um, and has always kind of done his own thing and forged his own path, and and um, has he's been uncompromising with his vision of how he wants his career to be, and I admired that a lot, and he understood the repertoire, and there are very few teachers in North America that that are passionate about that music and, and understand it and know it as well as he does. And so it was kind of a no-brainer to go in that direction. Okay, so how, how important is it as a cellist who wants to study and play new music to know about the old music? Very important. So you have to go through... You have to go through, yeah. Okay. I mean, playing... Bach and Beethoven and Brahms and Schumann and uh, teaches you all about sound, beautiful sound and phrasing and, and dynamics and just creating a sound world and, and making... How do I phrase this? That's where the core of music making lies, I think. Right. And especially with someone like Beethoven, who even now still sounds new in some respects to this day. Um with, with especially with some of his later works, but it's extremely important. I think you, like you should never forget or eschew that music. It's very, it's at the core of classical music. Right. But at the same time, I don't think it's healthy to only focus on those things. I think it's important to be aware of and participate actively in what's being made and created now, because mm-hmm. that's a reflection of our like the music of the day is supposed to be reflective of the cultural climate and society of that era. And if you're only focusing on something that was written two or 300 years ago, you're not getting the full picture of, of how people are expressing themselves currently. And I think it's important to, to, yeah, I just, the part that I'm not sure about is how do you, how much time do you dedicate to, to the masters or to what came before? And then, you know, then how much do you dedicate to the new music? That's a good question. Uh, I don't really have an answer for that. I'm not sure. I don't I, even know if there's the right answer or not. But I'm. But you're I telling me. I think it depends me... on you because there, there. I mean, not everyone enjoys or likes playing or can do the current stuff. Right. Well, right. But it's weird because the current stuff can be really melodic and accessible, it can. Or whatever. But oftentimes it isn't, and I think a lot of people, when you think about when you say new music, it's like a lot of people who are not in the classical world when you say new music they think of very abstract 
And a lot of, I'd say a lot of, the majority of it probably is in that realm. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are writing from that perspective. But I think that's how people are feeling these days, especially right. in Western society. So much is uncertain. So much is up in the air. And there's so much turmoil um, that it's reflective in the writing of a lot of people. This sort of, I don't want to say darkness, but I think there's an element of that there. Uh, and uncertainty in the writing. But I, I think it's fine to accept that not everyone's going to like or enjoy that music but I think it's unfair for people to just write it off as noise or unmusical garbage without trying to understand where it's coming from which is where I think the organizations fail in in their presentation of the music which is what we try to do with VC2 like we have a lot of 20th and 21st century music that we would play Mm -hmm. but we make sure to humanize it before we play it by talking about it a little bit, adding a personal anecdote, just something small to help connect the listeners to it a little bit more, even if it's something very abstract or strange. Or, or um, there's one piece uh, on the album that people have. One of the comments that we got was uh, that it sounded like planes taking off, um, or jet engines, or something like that. And but they appreciated that we talked a little bit about it, and like they were still able to to digest it because they kind of they had a connection to it before hearing it because of how we presented the work right um yeah it's it's unfair to expect people to like everything that's not okay so when you when you pick i know you commissioned some people to write some stuff for you but when you pick the the songs for songs the pieces for your album Mm -hmm. are there some that you think well this is going to be tougher to sell or this is not as accessible as others does that ever deter you from presenting it or does it um i think you have to look at where you're presenting the music like there there are definitely some pieces that we play that we love that we would be hesitant to play let's say at um a long-term care home right uh just because but although we have done some of it and um it depends on the home (laughs) Uh, it's gone over well in some places, but you I think... You read the audience. If, yeah, you have to read the audience. Um, but I think people will never learn how this stuff sounds and how good it can be if you don't take the time to present it or if right. you don't let artists present the repertoire. And there's still this fear um, about bringing in new music, uh, especially new Canadian music for some reason, um, amongst presenters. Because I think they, they fear that their audience is not going to enjoy it. But how is the audience ever going to expand their palate if you don't let them hear what's going on? Right. So it's kind of, it's a bit of a catch-22, I think. So VC2 so, came together because you were asked to put together a form a cello duo mm-hmm. doing some popular music. That's right. And I presume, as, as you had witnessed with me, that when you do popular music... The people respond, not kinder, but they respond to it very easily. They do, yep. So what does that tell you? Or how do you, do you approach presenting music differently because of that? Uh, I don't know if I would say we approach it differently. I would say, well, maybe in a sense. We, we try to approach our classical concerts almost as if they were a bit of a rock show 
in in the sense of like I feel, classical music is kind of the only genre where people don't talk about things between pieces or between songs. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no banter with the audience. There's no jokes. And it's becoming more common to do this now. But it's still not as common as I would like, I think. And if you go to any other concert, um, you'll have the, the artists talking to the audience. Even something like Indian classical music. Uh, it's, it's paramount that the performers talk to the audience. Even if it's something simple as saying the name of the rag they're about to play. Mm-hmm. Um, we're the only people that don't really do that. And I think it that's only contributing to the inaccessibility of everything and, and the art form becoming more and more niche. So in a sense, I guess we've we made sure our presentation is more like that. It's a little more casual. Like we're still a classical group. Right. Um, we still dress in suits when we play sometimes, but um, we try to keep the vibe on stage a bit more light. And how, I mean, I saw you at the Ottawa Chamber Festival, mm-hmm. but how has that been received, your approach to performing and oh, talking? Oh, really well. We've come a long way since then, I think. Um, we've become more comfortable with ourselves and with talking to audiences and, and with our delivery and timing and all that kind of stuff. And as we've done it a lot more, um, like when, when you saw us at Chamberfest, we were still kind of, I mean, we're still figuring things out. We're always going to be figuring things out, but that was kind of right around this time where everything was starting to take off. And we were, we were really trying to, to smooth everything out, uh, and streamline everything. Um, but everywhere we've gone, that's been received incredibly well and it's usually one of the first things people say when they talk to us after is like we like loved how you handled yourselves you're like the banter it made everything a lot more enjoyable like we had never heard stuff like that before but it was great that you talked about it um and like we liked hearing about yourselves when you talked told your stories like a lot of great feedback about that so we're that's something we'd never stop doing i think has there any has there been any negative feedback uh, I mean, I don't not to our why, faces. But... <laughs> I mean, I'm sure people have. Uh, there's, there's never going to be only positive feedback, wait, wait, but wait. Uh, we haven't had any negative feedback specifically to us. I'm sure it's been there, but we haven't heard any of it yet. Or people saying, "Well, most people don't talk in between pieces. Why are you guys doing it?" Or nobody's ever questioned. Well, that. I think the closest thing to negative feedback. So we like telling really corny jokes. I think Brian actually talked about this in mm. in when he came and talked to you, but um a lot of the shows that we've done here, people either don't find us funny or <laughs> don't like to laugh. They don't like to make sounds in between pieces cuz like we would tell some jokes and maybe our delivery was off, I don't know, but we would we would tell these jokes on tour in the East coast and we would tell them in like small cities in Ontario and we'd get a lot of laughter and chuckles and, and people responding really well. And then we'd tell them at a big show in downtown Toronto and everyone would just, yes, I will hear the classical music now, please. <laughs> we didn't, we didn't come to this concert for jokes, music kind mm. of vibe, like very serious um, kind of thing. I don't know. And I don't know if that has to do with us or if that has to do with the audience. That, that's the closest thing to actual negative feedback, I would say. Okay. So this is still a new thing. I mean, you guys have been together for a few years. Yep. You just recorded your first album. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I know you don't make plans, but is right. there a plan? Like, I know you just got signed to an agency. Yep. There is tour plans, but beyond that, is there a, a two-year plan or a five-year plan or, uh, or, I, or what you would like to see BC2 accomplish? Hmm, that's a good question, too. Uh, I think, again, we're kind of thinking more in the immediate future. We have uh, a few projects. Um, we're kind of going by pro from one project to the next project. Right. Although... It would be wonderful in the next few years to find our way onto some international chamber music festivals. We would like to be up there with the top chamber music groups around now. Whether right. that will happen or not is a different story. But that's where we would like to be at some point. And, and, and we want to show people. Do you have an idea what that means? What that entails to to get to that point? Just keep working. Keep uh, refining our musicianship. Keep uh, refining our our performance consistency, I think that's really important. Is is maintaining um, a consistently high level. Of course, you'll have off nights, and right. um, but just trying to trying to get to that next level of musicianship um, that really really grabs people, and we're, we're grabbing at people now. But there's always, 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 always room to get better. Okay, so how does one do that? Like, you were talking about the banter and you're saying from two years ago when I saw you mm -hmm. or a year ago, um, it's, it's improved. And I yeah. presume that's just by doing it more That's and just more. by doing it, yeah. And musicianship wise, musicality. That's, that's a really hard one. That's a much more abstract thing. I think just being more critical, um, critical of ourselves, listening more critically to ourselves while we're rehearsing. Um, just not letting ourselves get away with as much as we may have before, um, which we're already doing now, which is good. Um, Give me an example of that. I mean, sometimes we'd... <laughs> I probably shouldn't even be saying this, but we, we would have a performance or something like that, and both of us would be... We're pretty active freelancers in the city, so we both get really busy individually. Mm -hmm. Um and we'd only have a limited amount of rehearsal time. So you would just kind of rehearse something and be like, okay, that's good enough. Um, without necessarily getting to like the musical nitty gritty of what's going on. It would just be like, okay, we can play through this. Uh, and then we'd perform it and it would feel like crap um, because of that. And not being okay with that, I think is very right. important. But is that an easy thing to do when, as you said, you're doing a lot of freelance work in your... If you want it to happen, you make it happen. I think it's it's maybe it's not necessarily easy, but there's always ways to make time for that. I think, especially if you want your group to be like, I think both of us want we want to do a lot of different things. We want this to be our main thing, right? Um, because in a chamber group like this, you don't have to answer to personnel managers. You don't have to walk on eggshells to make sure you get hired by yada 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 yada. You kind of are in control of your own performing destiny in some ways, or in many ways. And it's nice to have a certain level of autonomy as an artist, right? Um, so I think whatever we can do to make that happen, we will do at this stage. I think early on, we weren't sure what, what, what was going to happen with this and um, where it was going to go. And I think now we've gotten to this point where like, we are ready and willing and eager to keep taking it to higher and higher levels. 
So is it possible that this could be a full-time thing beyond anything else? Or will you that always be, nice. be doing? I mean, that would that be a goal? That would be a goal, yeah. I mean, I would, I would say uh, nobody, with very few exceptions, has just one thing that right. they do, right? Even, even people in um, full-time string quartets and things like that still will go and play chamber music with other musicians, um, whether at music festivals or, or other places. Right. And so it's important to have other outlets. Like people in, in major orchestras have other projects. Like mm-hmm. members of the TSO, Winona, who I mentioned before, has Trio Arkell, um, which, which is a great string trio. Um, uh, David Hetherington, who used to be the, he's retired assistant principal cello, was also heavily involved in a lot of new music um, groups in the city. He still is. Uh, and he has his own chamber um collective called Amici that he co-founded and uh, it's important to have a lot of other things going on too I think just for your own artistic fulfillment and sanity so beyond the freelance gigs that you get called up for what are the projects that you're working on Uh, I'm part of a new music performing collective called Thin Edge New Music Um, they are a small slowly steadily growing collective they've been I think they're entering or they're in their seventh or eighth season now. Um, uh, we did um, a performance at TIFF in November of um, this percussionist. Uh, Sarah Hennies had a piece called um, Contralto, uh, which involved seven transgender women doing vocal exercises. And the theme was kind of um, the... So there's, there's a film, sorry. That's why it was okay. that tip. A film and then live score accompaniment. And the premise was that uh, as a transgender woman who takes estrogen, your voice doesn't naturally get higher. Right. Um, you have to train yourself to do that. And that was kind of the, the genesis of that piece. Whereas with a transgender male who takes testosterone, your vocal cords will thicken and um, your voice will deepen. And... So that idea kind of forged this film. It was like a 50-minute film with accompanying score. Uh, we have another concert coming up in March um, of all newly commissioned solo works. So there's a composer in Montreal who's writing a solo cello and electronics piece for me. Um, I have a cello, small cello concertino for cello and electronics coming up in April with a spree orchestra that a friend of mine is finishing writing now. Um, yeah, a lot of different new music stuff, oh. I think, is, is... That's kind of where I found my niche in the city. Uh, Brian does a lot of work with the like the ballet and the opera and, and things like that. And I've kind of found myself in this other realm, which is great. And I enjoy it. I get to work with a lot of uh, great young composers. And yeah, I've just been learning a lot from that. <laughs> so whatever happened to the thrash metal thing? Uh, I still would love to do that. Um, I still play guitar when I have the time. And I would say the majority of the music I listen to is still metal. Um, I don't tend to listen to a lot of classical music. Uh, I listen to a lot of... I don't even know how to describe it. Um, without, I don't want to use the word extreme, but for the lack of a better word, a lot of very extreme metal, I guess that's what I would call it. Um, and I don't really know why, but that's kind of where my musical tastes lie. 
in that world. I mean, I, I, I have a pretty diverse taste too. I like a lot of Prague and other things like that too. But um, yeah, it's always been kind of in that realm. Okay, so why why not the cello with death metal or whatever? I've thought about it. Um, there's a friend of mine who's already doing that though. Oh, okay. uh, I don't know if you met Raphael Monroth no. Brown when you were in Ottawa. Um, he he's an Ottawa-based cellist, uh, and right now he's been on tour for the last basically year and a half with this Norwegian prog metal band called Leprous. Um, he recorded on their album, and then he, his own solo music. He has one. He's one of the composers on the record, um, and his piece is like the heavy metal piece, and so he's already kind of doing that in his own. Um, I mean, I can't imagine. There was a time when I was growing up where like heavy metal would have been a big thing and there would have been money in some of the bands. There I'm, isn't. I'm not sure if there is anymore. There is, well, there, there isn't. Um, there, there kind of was in the mid-90s when like Pantera came around yeah. and kind of moved things out of the grunge realm and they made metal and guitar solos popular again. But uh, there's no money in heavy metal. Even the most popular touring acts are barely making money. Like, it, it's hard to do that if you're not Metallica. <laughs> yeah, I mean they're all like they're they're millionaires at this point. But uh, in terms of like death metal, thrash metal, black metal, that kind of stuff, you're not. You are at that point. You're not doing it to make a living. But I also would like to make a living. <laughs> okay, how much is how much does money come into what you do? Uh, I mean, while this is my passion, it's also a business. Right. Uh, and so that is very important. There's lots of things that I've done for way less than I would normally charge. Um, because there's sort of like the gig trifecta, right? Um, good people, good music, good pay. And if it has two of those three things, it's worth taking. Um, and I've done a lot of things that have had great people and great music and not so great money. But it was totally worth it because of the people and the music involved were amazing and the experience was great. And um, that kind of thing has also helped me. Like there, there's a, there was a small composer collective um, that I've worked with a number of times that they don't, their pay is less than union scale, but they do what they can with the funding they get. And they try to make, make sure things are fair for everyone involved. Uh, and I've met a lot of really great people through working with them, including the people involved in the, the collective themselves, um, who have become good friends and great composers. Uh, and that's also kind of helped me get myself more known in the new music scene. Uh, and so not only have I been able to, to become more known in, as someone who can play that kind of stuff, but I've also had a good time doing it. Right, and then do, if people want to contact, like, do they? Do you have a manager? Like, I don't have a manager. So people just directly contact yeah. you. Okay. They just email me directly. And then, is there any desire to compose, from your point of view? <laughs> um, I have tried, and I'm not good at it. <laughs> uh, the most recent, again, air quotes, uh, composing that I've tried. A friend of mine uh, and I kind of want to start a little like progressive rock metal trio, just guitar based drums. Uh, oh, okay. So it's still, cause when I talked to you about the guitar, you said you weren't that good. 
I'm not that good, but I still play as much as I can. Like I'm not terrible, okay. but but well, I'm not. Well, why not great. the cello? I just really want to play the guitar. <laughs> okay. I still have this like thing in the back of my head of, of of being in a rock band and being on stage. And I used to have really long hair, and I used to love whipping it around. And I don't now because <laughs> genetics wasn't kind to me in that respect. But it's still like a dream in the back of my head. And I would I I played cello and guitar in kind of um, like a blue it's not blues rock it's like kind of a rock band um cello and guitar yeah just a couple of songs in guitar mostly on cello um improvised uh i improvised and wrote all of my parts and then all of the solos were improvised and is that an easy thing to do for you to improvise depends on what the changes are (laughs) uh depends on the tune like if uh, over like a blues sure over something that's like pretty standard yeah over like a crazy Wayne shorter tune, no, no. Okay. Or like if someone was to say, "Here, improvise over giant steps," I'd be like, "No, I can't. I don't know how to do that." <laughs> um, but yeah, I can. I can improvise. It's mostly by ear, but I can understand chord charts and things like that. And and what um, cellist would inspire you in terms of improvising? Yeah. Oh, there's a number of amazing cellists who play and improvise in the like well, Matt Brubeck for sure, who's mm-hmm. one. Um, and he was one of the composers. He was right? one of the composers. Yeah, he's just a great guy, and he's like ridiculous improviser. Um, Mike Block, uh, who plays in the Silk Road Ensemble and uh, is also an amazing cellist. Um, Eugene Friesen, Eric Friedlander are both also great improvising jazz cellists. And then, if you want something like a little more crazy, but in the bluegrass realm, Rashad Eggleston is kind of a madman of the cello. He he plays in a really unorthodox way. He kind of developed this, the cello strap. Um, he does a lot of crazy ricochet stuff, and he has a kazoo st- strapped on the side of his cello that he'll like improvise melodies on while playing mm-hmm. basically rhythm bluegrass guitar on the cello. Uh, and then doing all sorts of crazy things and like hanging upside down and playing. And, yeah. So we can still see you potentially as a guitar player one day. Maybe. I mean, I would, I would love to, to have like something that would be more of a fun project just to do like fun little gig. I wouldn't expect to make any money playing guitar. Uh, I just really enjoy it. I've always, there are a lot of guitarists that I love and admire and there's something about rock guitar and metal guitar that really appeals to me. And they're like, even some of my favorite, um, for lack of a better term, jazz guitarists had their start in, I guess they're more fusion guitarists, but they had their start in in rock music and like shredding, mm-hmm. um, like someone like Wayne Krantz or uh, Greg Howe, um, who like started off as like seventies and eighties shredders, and developed a lot of jazz sensibility and learned phrasing and learned chord structure and theory and and voice leading, and now they have both of those elements in their playing. That's always been really interesting to me. Like the guitar has always been fascinating to me somehow more so than the cello like I love the cello and I would never give it up and like the cello is who I am but in the back of my head sometimes I'm like well what if you played the guitar <laughs> tell me the difference between the two for you like what does the cello give you and what does the guitar give you um well the cello is one it's a job but two it's also more like my own voice like I, I've been with it enough and I can express myself with it. And I, I understand the instrument enough that I, like, I don't feel 
at least most of the time, I don't feel hindered trying to get something across. Whereas the guitar is something that I'm still learning and figuring out how to do things. And um, it's more of like a fun noodly thing that I can go to. How much time is spent on both instruments? Uh, Guitar is whenever I can get around to cello hours a day. Um, Guitar when I have energy. (laughs) (laughs) So it might not even be every day. Absolutely not. Okay. No, so the cello is every day. Cello is every day. Yeah, guitar, especially recently, it's been lucky if I could get like twice a week, um, which is bad because like sometimes I'll go through these stretches where I'll practice diligently for like I don't know a month, mm-hmm. and then I'll go for two months without touching it, which is bad because I keep buying them. <laughs> How many do you have now? Five. Okay, that's not that bad. It's not that many, but but it's it's probably four more than I should have. Um, why the five? Like, what's the difference between the five that you have? Uh, okay, well, so technically I would have seven, but two, <laughs> two, two are no longer functional. So um, the ones I have now, two of them I bought in Montreal. One, while I was in Montreal, I was like in a bit of a rut, uh, and I wanted something to occupy my time. So I went on eBay and found this guitar shop in Ottawa that was selling a really nice Godin guitar at a really good price. So I just bought it. Um, and then I found um, uh, a nice little low wattage lunchbox head amplifier on Kijiji for a good price with a 1x12 cabinet. So I went and just bought that. And then I would practice in my room. And then I was I would, I got in this habit of, of surfing gear forums. Mm-hmm. There's one that I like really love called 7string.org, uh, which started off as a forum geared towards extended range guitars, so seven, eight, nine string guitars. Right. Um, so I started reading more about gear and browsing a lot of Kijiji. Uh, and then I found this really old uh, 1990 Japanese-made Jackson guitar that I had been kind of lusting after for a while. Again, at a really amazing price. So <laughs> I went and bought that. Right. Um, and then I had also been lusting after a V-style guitar for a while. Uh, especially the Randy Rhodes shape, mm-hmm. which is kind of like an offset V where one horn is longer than the other one. And I found a guy in Australia who was selling one, uh, again, at a good price. Was the V for the look or for the sound? Uh, the look. Okay. Absolutely the look. <laughs> uh, again, as someone who's like a huge metal guy, like the flying V is like... Yeah. yeah. Or like just pointy guitars in general. <laughs> and I had always wanted a V, and this, was, this happened to be a really nice one. Um, so I picked that one up. I probably shouldn't have. Uh, I still don't think my parents know I spent that money on that guitar. Don't tell them about the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, then I, I moved back here, and since moving back here, uh, I didn't buy any guitars until recently, um, where I found an American Stratocaster for a really good price <laughs> that I picked up. See, this is the thing. If, if I see something... Stratocasters aren't really metal, though, are they? No, but I really wanted a Strat. Okay. There's something about the feel and sound of a Strat. And oh, you yeah. can play high-gain stuff with single-coil Strat pickups and still have it sound great. There's something like a bit more twangy and spanky and clear about it if you can deal with the extra noise. But, um, And then I have uh, an acoustic guitar that my mother purchased for some reason but then never ended up using, so she just gave it to me. So when you pick up the guitar the next time, which guitar do you pick up? Uh, it depends. Recently, I've been playing the Strat a lot. Just because it feels... I mean, they all feel great. The Strat um, and the Godin, I think, are my favorites. 
Strats are pretty sweet. Yeah. Um, cellos, how many cellos do you have? Uh, I have two. Okay. So I have um, my wooden cello, which I've had for a bit over a year now, uh, or maybe two years. I can't remember. When did I buy it? Um, but I, uh, I hadn't really owned a professional quality cello in a long time. Uh, I had this workshop cello that I was playing on for a while that I bought it uh, in the year 2000. Uh, and then throughout my undergrad and some of my masters and my time at GGS, I was borrowing instruments from various people. Um, and then eventually the cello I was most recently borrowing, the owner wanted back. So I needed to, I was kind of like, okay, I need my own cello at this point. Uh, and so that's a concept that's really yeah. bizarre to me. Like you borrow or somebody lends you. Because well, they're so expensive, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so at, when you when you have that, does it feel like your own, or does it feel no. like it's a temporary thing? And you will in the back of your head, you know it's a temporary thing. So at least for me, it was hard to get really attached to the instrument. Right. It's still sad when you have to let it go and go I'm back sure. to what you have. But cause, and the one that I most recently had, I was playing on for three three years or something like that before I had to give it back. So I got pretty comfortable with it. Uh, but the one I have now, I I love. Um, and then I have the carbon cello. Right. And that you use the carbon good. cello for VC2 because? We only use it sometimes. We oh, use I a carbon think... cello if we have to do a lot of uh, retuning or alternate tunings. Uh, or if we're traveling and can't buy tickets for our cellos. Because or they're... if we're going somewhere with an insane climate. <laughs> and what about the sound of the carbon cello? It's kind of, it's a different sound. It's a little less, it kind of has its own sound although recorded it's hard to tell the difference um it seems like live and under your ear they feel and sound different there's something less earthy yeah. i guess that's a good way to put it i don't know it's, it's a different thing i used the carbon cello as my main instrument for a couple of years at U of T, and uh it's nice but visually a lot of people get turned off by them do people frown upon them yeah yeah yes <laughs> I definitely got a lot. There was a lot of prejudice against my carbon cello when I was using it at U of T from students and faculty. Oh, but it makes more sense. It's more practical. Uh, in terms of, of moving around, like playing outside, like not having anything shift or whatever. Yeah. And they're much, much harder to break. Right. Um, they don't sound as good as a good wooden cello, though. But there's no getting around that. They sound great, but a nice wooden cello is just... So that would be your preference? Yes. Just touring is a real pain. Yeah. You have, a, I presume, an exciting year coming up. I mean, mm -hmm. it's been a busy year this year, but next year is going to be even bigger. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, so in terms of VC2, um, we have a CD release show coming up in January with our friends in the Dome Ensemble. Um, then probably have, we have a few other things scattered around there, some projects in the work. We have some new commissions coming in. Uh, and then in October, we'll start the first half of a tour of the Prairies through uh, this touring organization called Prairie Debut. Uh, and so that'll take us to a lot of parts of Canada that neither of us have been to. Like we've, we've seen a little bit of the Prairies. Like I've, we've both been to Regina, Saskatoon, right. um, Brandon, Manitoba. Brian maybe has been to some other parts of Alberta I've been we've both been to Calgary and Edmonton um, but this tour is going to take us to a lot of smaller communities that aren't always surfaced by by the arts 
Uh, and that's a big part of Prairie ABU. They want to get the arts out to communities that wouldn't normally have access to them. Um, and so we'll see a lot of, we'll get to see a lot of the prairies. And then the second leg of that tour, I think, is going to be sometime in, in January, February, which is going to be a little crazy out in the prairies <laughs> at that time of year. So for somebody who doesn't plan that far in advance, mm-hmm. you have gigs like coming up over a year from now. Yeah. That's so pretty cool. that we have to plan for. Yeah, um, uh, yeah that's about as far as I would go. <laughs> uh, and then I have um, a couple of commissions coming my way for myself. Um, there's the one for Thin Edge, and then there's the, the small concertino with the Spree Orchestra in April. Um, and then there are a few other people who I think we're, we have some projects on the go together, pending grants. But, uh, so the commissions, how long, t- how much time do you have to learn and then execute them? Well, the the main commission for this VC2 tour, hopefully we'll have, ideal thing would be to have them no later than two months before you have to play. Um, the concerto I'm supposed to be getting in January and the concert's in April. Uh, the other piece for solo cello and electronics I'm supposed to be getting... Uh, early February and that concert's in March uh, mid-March or end of March Um, and then the piece for VC2 not sure hopefully we'll get it July Um, we have we had like a small fragment of things that the composer asked us to improvise over and it already seems like it's going to be pretty crazy so hopefully we'll get it soon (laughs) cool thank you so much for doing this yeah it's been been fun talking to you yeah absolutely this is great I really appreciate you doing this I'm really glad to have been here. Thank you.